Well, to this point in our uh, study of Ephesians, or um, should I say in chapter 4, Paul has been pretty general. Um, He's been painting with this wide brush in terms of the practical implications of our salvation. And tonight we come to a text uh, in which he gets really specific uh, regarding the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new. And the question really is why? Why would he choose this point to become specific? John Calvin helps us answer that question. He, said, he, he once said, We are so tangled in our vanities that if God only says generally that we must be reformed according to His image and utterly deny ourselves, it does not touch us at all, but we let it pass by. Therefore, He has to spell it out in detail as if He should dissect our thoughts and affections and bring to light the vices which we want to harbor secretly. It is when matters are explained in detail that men are the more awakened. So tonight, we begin, really now through the end or the middle of chapter 6, we begin a series of wake-up calls. Wake-up calls or specific imperatives that are going to hit very close to home. And, as, and, and really, and if we're honest, they're going to feel potentially even a little bit intrusive. As the older generation of my old Baptist circles used to say, it's going to feel as though I've gone from preaching to meddling. Some of you are familiar with that. And so, again, in the words of Calvin, I want us to hear this. Although we may try to shrink away and invent excuses and invasions, yet despite all that, we are bound to feel some remorse. And let's just say that up front. I mean, but that's what the law does, right? When we hear the law... Um, we understand that it reveals that we fall short of His glory, we fall short of His standard. But it doesn't leave us there, because it also points us to Christ. It points us to the answer. So as we move through these specifics, not only tonight, but in the weeks ahead, I want to remember this advice. Let us fall down before the majesty of our good God with acknowledgement of our sins, praying Him to make us perceive them more and more. But may He enlighten us with the doctrine of the gospel that we may also behold the righteousness which has been shown us in our Lord Jesus Christ and lean upon it with endeavor to be fashioned thereafter so that we may daily come nearer and nearer to it until we cleave thoroughly to it. In other words, let's sit under the authority of God's Word and let it it do what it, it should do. Let the imperatives instruct us. Let the imperatives convict us where they need to, but let them also point us to the Lord Jesus. Let them point us to Christ where we find forgiveness and hope and rest and the power to do what we've been called to do. Because apart from the gospel, we would not be able to answer these imperatives or to follow through in what we've been called to do. And so with that said, would you please stand in the honor of God's word 
And I want to read again the verses, not all of them, but I want to read our text tonight from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray together. God, we'd ask in these moments that you would do what you desire to do with us as we come to sit under the authority of your word. Would you convict, convict us and instruct us, but Father, may we see Jesus. May we see him in his glory. And I'd ask that, Father, that you would remove anything from your servant that would hinder that vision, that would hinder us from, from seeing Christ. Bless us now through your word preached in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a note-taking sheet, as uh, Chris mentioned to you earlier. Uh, the hymn that we're going to sing next is on the back side of that. Um, there are three points in our outline tonight. Of course, we're going to look at the foundation of the new self, the intention of the new self, and the demonstration of the new self. Let's begin first with the foundation. Last week, if you were not with us, we walked through Paul's call to the Ephesians to live distinctively. And really, even if you were with us, it's, it's good for us to remember. Okay? Um, we need to remember what he has called us to. And that call was twofold. One, it was a call to stop doing the things that were associated with the old self because that old self had been done away with and was no more. But it was also a call to, uh, to do things, to start doing the things that were associated with a new way of life because the, the Ephesians, as Paul is writing, says, he says that they were new creations. And they who are dead in their trespasses and sins uh, and their old habits and those old patterns that were a part of that old life had been crucified with Christ and they had been raised to walk in newness of life, to borrow Paul's words from the, uh, from the book of Romans. Uh, their, their sin nature had, he said, had been dealt a, a death blow and that old way of thinking and those old patterns of behaving were no longer inevitable. It wasn't something that was just naturally going to happen. They were, and, and we read and we used this phrase last week, they were no longer in the casket, spiritually speaking. That casket had been opened and they had uh, been brought out of that casket. And so they were now alive. They were now with a new, a new identity in Christ. And that same spirit, that same power that raised Christ from the dead was residing within them and was giving them the power to do what he had called them to do. They had been declared righteous and Paul is saying that we must live as, as we've been declared to be and become what we've been declared to be, again, by the Spirit, in faith, by the Spirit. And of course, the same is true for you and me. You and I are able to hear and to heed the imperatives to live a life worthy of the manner 
of the calling that we have been given, we are able to heed the call to live distinctively because we are new creatures in Christ. The old selves have died, the new selves have come. We've, as we've studied the book of Ephesians, we've been chosen, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, adopted, and sealed by the Spirit. It's who we are, it's who we've been declared to be. So we've been united to Christ, we're in a relationship with Him, and it's His work on our behalf that's been credited to us that serves for or serves as the foundation for this new self. We must start there. Last week I also pointed out that Paul wasn't so naive to think uh, that that change was going to be immediate or that change was going to happen without stumbling or there was no way that Paul was expecting us to be perfect in any way. He understood that that old way of life, the old habits, the old behaviors had, um, well, had taken its toll and we had become used to them and they were profoundly significant. And he knew firsthand that the Christian life was a battle and again, in words we used last week, you know, we've been, we've been, the, the, the casket has been opened and we're out of it, but we have this tendency as human beings to crawl back in it. But Paul knew and expected us to remember and to keep coming back, even as we are tonight, coming back to the truths of who we are in Christ. We come back to the, that renewing of our minds because that casket remains open. It did not, it does not close behind us. It remains open and our temptations and sins that we battle with on a regular basis shouldn't cause us to think that we're back enslaved to our old sin nature. We shouldn't allow those sins and those temptations and the times that we give in to, to cause us to think that in some way that we're powerless. Because we're not. We're able to hear the commands, put off the sins, put on the holy and righteous behavior, and obey. Because... We've been justified, we've been sanctified, we've been loved with an everlasting love. And though we are vulnerable to temptation and sin, it does not have to be inevitable. It does not have to be inevitable. In Christ, and it's His work, it's Christ and His work in the Spirit that resides within us that allows us and grants us the power to live differently. And we also said, in the last reminder, we also said that when we do give in to the temptation and sin, what do we do? We run to the cross. We run to the, we run to the cross where we find forgiveness, where we have hope. And so, and we said, and, and, and a couple of you this week said that this was something that stuck out to you, that, that our, life, our life in the day-to-day -day is a matter of striving and resting. Striving and resting. Striving and resting. So when we come to our passage tonight, I, I think it's important for us to notice the language that he uses here because it provides what I'm, what I'm referring to as the intention of that new life. In other words, where and when should we apply these distinctives? When do we put them into practice? And I think we find those answers to, or the answer to that question in the passage, when we keep the passage within the current context, within the context, you know, it's, it's good Bible study, so we're going to keep it in the context of the letter itself. Where does it fall in the placement of the letter? What has been said before? What is going to be said following? And while the specifics of the call to living canon should be applied to our lives as a whole, I think these specific exhortations at this specific time, Paul has something specific in mind. Okay? 
Hang, hang with me here. It would be beneficial, and it, and it is something that we should do. In our call, we, we are called to live and should live in the way that he's calling the Ephesians and calling us to do here in this particular passage. But there's something specific. I think there's a, a specific context where he, where he desires for this to take place, and it's in the context of the church. Among us. Again, yes, we're to live that way outside. We're to, we're to live and, and put these things into practice uh, that He is going to instruct us in. But specifically, I, I think He has in mind how we relate to one another. And not only do we see that because of the context of chapter 4 and the language that He uses, but I think we see it specifically here uh, we see it in the example in verse 25 of the, uh, the language he uses of members of one another. And then we see it again in verse 32 when he talks about one another's. And so why is that important? And that's important because, and I think that it's important for a couple of reasons. One is the church is a family. We, we are a family. You, you hear me say that quite often. We're, we're a family, and like any family, there's tremendous benefit to being a part of that family, but at the same time, as you know, it's not always easy. Actually, there are times when it's really difficult, particularly with a family made up of sinners, particularly made up with people like us. And like any family, there are moments uh, in the midst of our interactions with one another that we forget that it's not all about us. We forget that something bigger is at stake. That it's about each other. It's about us as a whole. And in those moments of forgetting, we need help. And that's what Paul's doing. Paul is providing us the help that we need, the reminders of how this all works as we interact with one another. How we relate to one another. We who have experienced grace are to extend grace to others. And that should take place within our family, first and foremost. And if it can't take place within our family, how is it going to take place anywhere else? So Paul says it needs to happen here. And yes, we have this propensity to stray. We have this propensity to kind of throw attention back onto ourselves or demand attention be brought back to ourselves. And, and so Paul is trying to say no. He's laying out these, again, he's laying out these demands not to say if you do them, you can be a part of the family. He's saying because you are a part of the family, this is how you're going to live. And secondly, the context is important because we're being watched. The church is being watched. You and I are being watched. Uh, in uh, a few pages back in the New Testament, John sa uh, Jesus says in John thirteen thirty five, "By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another." So Paul is helping the Ephesians, and he's helping us by reminding us that how we treat one another. How we live among one another, how we love one another, and how we extend grace to one another is necessary and good because people are paying attention. They're watching. And both of these, these reasons are very important for us, particularly as we move into, or as we are now in, month five of our church plant. And as we desire to 
to bring the gospel to Bentonville and Bella Vista. What will people see when they look? What will people see as they watch us? When they visit, what do they observe? When they hear us talking about our relationships with our bro- about our brothers and sisters or with our brothers and sisters, what do they hear? Do they hear about and do they hear relationships that are different from those that they're in? Is it different for them? Will they know that we're disciples of the Lord Jesus by the love that we have for one another and how we interact with one another and the, and the grace that we extend to one another? And, and then the last question is, and will they want what we have? Will they want what we have? And Paul gives five, very specific, at least tonight, he gives five ways that we can demonstrate this new self among one another to a watching world. And in each of these, he gives something to take off and to put on that we talked about last week and also a motivation. So that's kind of the pattern that we're going to follow. Something to put off, something to put on, and the motivation. Let's first look at the first way he says we can demonstrate the new self and that is through the love of truth. He says, put away falsehood Speak the truth or put on truth. And this is more this is more than I'm going to expand this a little bit. This is more than just not lying and telling the truth. Okay, there's far more to it than than simply not lying and telling the truth. That that is a part of it. But again, let's consider the context. Because I think there's far more than just that. If you remember last week we said that verses 17 through 19 was very similar to Romans chapter 1. And in those two passages, Paul lays out and he says uh, that, that there's an exchanging of the truth. There is out, for those who are lost, for those who are not believers, he calls them Gentiles in here in Ephesians 4, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they begin worshiping themselves, and this is Romans language, they begin to worship themselves rather than the Creator. We also read uh, earlier in chapter 4, he said that a church who is growing up into Christ is, will do what? They will exhibit or it will exhibit stability in the truth. It will speak the truth in love and it will serve out of truth. So what, what's Paul doing? Paul's doing what he often does and that is he's repeating himself once again. Because you and I need to hear it once again. And what, is he, what, what he's saying is that one of the ways that we can exhibit the new life is to, is to demonstrate the embracing of, the confidence in, and the communication of the truth of the Word of God and the Gospel. As we interact with one another, in our relationships with one another, the Word of God in general and the Gospel specifically should be a part of our everyday conversations. And I got an example of this on Friday. It was fantastic. I'm in a, a part of a couple of text groups that you guys are in, and you've graciously allowed me to be a part of that. And uh, I, this text came across my phone on Friday. And it said this, I appreciate all of you and the frank and open discussion and pointing each other to Christ and His work and word. Looking forward to more in the future. That's what Paul's talking about. Conversations around the Word of God. Conversations around the Gospel. That's Paul's desire. He says we need to put away falsehood that that he describes in other letters as idle speculations. 
vain philosophies, empty deceit, human traditions, idle chatter, irreverent babble. We're to put on the truth and bring the word of God and the gospel to bear on everyday life. And you and I know when we have those conversations that sometimes they're pleasant and easy and sometimes they're difficult and blunt. Because the word of God and the words of Paul to Timothy, the word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But the motivation that Paul states is that the motivation for loving and speaking the truth is it's because we're family. It's because we're members of one another. So we, we, not only do we need those conversations, but we ought to enter into those conversations because we're in union with one another. We're joined together. We have a desire to grow one another up. We have a desire to grow up ourselves. And how is that done? It's done through the Word of God. And so our, being our goal to grow up into Christ who is our head, we communicate the truth of God to one another. Paul concludes that statement to Timothy by saying that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's how this family talks. That's how this family should interact. Those are the conversations that we should have. We should be rejecting and, and putting off worldly wisdom and accepting and putting on and speaking the wisdom of God for the sake of one another and for who we are in Christ. So with that in mind, as we think about this passage, we see this passage with that in mind, it makes a lot of sense that the second way Paul says the new life is demonstrated is through emotional self-control. The putting off and putting on isn't as clear, but I think we could put it this way. We are to put off being angry and sinning and putting on being angry and not sinning. Okay, we're going to put off being angry and sinning and putting off, put off being angry and sinning and put on being angry and not sinning. And here's what I mean by that. Again, it's good for us to put this into practice every day, whether at home. And, and, right, beyond just here, we should do these things at home, at work, on the soccer field, on the basketball court. It doesn't matter. But Paul here in this context, if, if you will consider this, sometimes our speaking the truth in love to one another is really, really hard. Uh, that speaking the truth in love, um, and while it's profitable for reproof and correction, it's not always easy to hear. And a lot of times, what happens? We ha- we're having that conversation with someone And they speak the truth and it's difficult to hear and and maybe it is a little intrusive and we fail to exercise emotional self-control. We get self-defensive. We get angry. And, And who do we get angry at? We get angry at the other person sitting across the table. And we get defensive. We lash out. We might retaliate. We may attack back. We may stomp out of the room. And then we just leave it there. Never to address it. But I think Paul's saying it's not the anger that's the issue. It's the object of the anger. 
The anger shouldn't be directed at the messenger or the brother or sister who is speaking the truth. It should be directed at the sin itself. The anger should be directed at the fact that there, a residue of sin remains. The anger should be directed at the ongoing struggle that we're in and the flesh that rears its ugly head. Our anger should be directed at the fact that we're so easily entangled in sin and that is righteous indignation. Our problem comes when we take that anger that we have and the conviction that we feel and we redirect it toward each other. Anger with sin. Paul says we need to take the latter off. And notice he says it to not let the sun go down on your anger. And no, he doesn't say don't go to bed until the situation is resolved. That's a misinterpretation of this. I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to resolve something, the later and later it gets, the worse it gets. He says don't let the sun go down on your anger. And there's a big difference. If you lack self-control and are angry and are sinning, he says deal with it. Deal with it now. Repent of that anger. Don't allow it to, to fester over the course of days, weeks, and months. But even if it's a righteous anger, even if it's a righteous anger, he, he says, do the same thing. Deal with it. Repent of that. Hear the words. Because, he, he said, hear the words. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Hear the truth of the gospel. If we allow our anger, even the anger at our sin, to continue, it causes us... Uh, be, well, well we, we, we give... What does he say? We give the devil a foothold. When we allow that, that sin, if we allow it to continue, it can cause issues because harboring it really communicates that we're trusting in ourselves more than we're trusting in Christ. And so he says, don't, you need to deal with it. Don't give Satan an opportunity to wreak havoc. Because what happens? If our anger is misdirected at one another and we don't deal with it, what does Satan do? He causes division. But if we've, we, even, even the righteous anger, when we don't deal with it, when we don't come and confess our sins and even and, and, and speak to God of, of that anger and leave our anger at the cross for that sin and receive the forgiveness that he offers, if we don't do that, then what happens? Satan can cause that to create frustration, doubt, fear, and hopelessness. So Paul says, be angry, do not sin, deal with the anger. Either way, don't give Satan the opportunity to cause the problems that he wants to cause in your life and in the life of the church. The third way he says that we demonstrate the new life is through diligence and benevolence. He says, stop stealing or put off stealing and put off or put on honest work. And again, this, this makes sense when it comes to our daily living. We, we should work hard. We are to take care of our families. And I'll mention that in just a minute. We're not to cheat on our taxes. We're, we're to not falsify expense reports. We're not to take our brothers and sisters' candy or money off of their dressers. Right? But again, let, let's think of this in the context of the church. And we might struggle with that. 
How, how are we doing that? We, we need to remember again when the letter was written and we need to take into consideration that, that cultural and economic climate of the time and, and there are chan- chances are good that there's somebody within the church who is struggling financially due to their faith. And over a period of time, what does that do? That, that can create that, it can create anxiety, it can create uh, issues, uh, and it can cause them to tr- try to deal with things in their own way. And so what do they do? Well, one, they could actually have been stealing from one another. Taking things that weren't theirs from one another. Or maybe they were taking something out of the offering plate as it came by, rather than put something in. But I think another thing that they could be doing is maybe Paul is dealing with the age-old problem of laziness and the mistaken notion that, that some feel as though they're entitled to be taken care of by others. And they found themselves in a situation where they needed that. And so these people are taking advantage of being a part of a church who is, in fact, to take care of the needs of others. We are to meet the needs of each other as, as that need arises. But Paul's dealing with those who are taking advantage of that and they aren't willing to put forth the effort to provide them for themselves and, and they're relying on the church to the point that, 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 that they're stealing from one another. And really, they're stealing from those who really need it and can't do what, what needs to be done to provide for themselves. Whether that be through employment, loss of employment, or through, through health issues. So when it comes to this idea, we have to remember, you know, Paul, when we take all of Scripture, and you know, Paul is pretty firm on this. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul is saying, be diligent and work. Yes, there are times when we're in need. Yes, there are times we, we've lost our jobs and we've needed one another to come alongside one another. There are many times over the course of our ministry, my ministry that I've, I've had people in congregations who have lost their jobs, even for extended periods of time. And we've come to their need. We, we've come to meet their need and provide for them over the course of time. And that's good and necessary. Those who have health issues, those who are unable, maybe uh, disabled and not able to work. We should step in cheerfully and lovingly. We've been a, some of us that have been a part of Trinity Grace, watching the church in action over the last two years in certain situations and circumstances have been, has been outstanding. Unbelievable, really. But Paul says we must have the motivation to work we must work. We must be diligent when, when we're able. And of course he says, here's the motivation. He says, because we need to share with others. We need to share with one another. We need to work hard. So not, that we're not just amassing and accumulating things for ourselves, but we're, we're, we're working hard and being diligent so that we can in fact be benevolent and give those things away. And not only our church family, but the community. Right? From the overflow of what we have to be able to meet the needs of this area when called upon, what a joy that would be. Well, I need, <laughs> I need to speed up. So, uh, the fourth way we demonstrate the new life is through edification. 
He says, put off corrupting or really rot, rotting talk. And put on encouraging or edifying talk. Now many boil this down simply to vulgarity in four, four letter words. And, and I, I really sincerely believe that this is far more than that. It's far more than that. He's dealing with a deeper issue. Because we're to be people of grace, right? He, that's what he's instructing us to do. And so grace has been experienced by us, so we're to express it and, and extend it. And really, that it's the grace that should motivate us to speak encouraging words to one another. So really, the corrupting talk would be anything that tears somebody else down, anything that crushes their spirit, anything that causes them to question their value and worth in the eyes of God, anything that causes them to see themselves as undeserving of salvation or for some reason to not be a part of a local church or to be a part of this family, anything that causes them very simply to be stu- feel stupid in some way. And we could go on and on. You, you could come up with your own examples of ways that we tear one another down. But he says, rather edify, encourage, build one another up. Our words are to water and nourish one another as we're growing. Even when we've been wronged. Even when somebody acts and sins through their anger. When that anger is, is pointed at you. We're always to think of ways to give grace. And it's right at this point that Paul adds this statement, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We think that seems to be a little out of place, but when we think about it again in this context, we think, who is the Spirit? The Spirit is the Comforter. And He leads us into all truth. And so when we're not speaking the truth and we're, we're, not, we're not speaking kindly and encouraging one another, when we're not comforting one another with our words, what are we doing? We're doing the exact opposite of what this, who the Spirit is and what He's called us to do. And that opposite behavior grieves Him. Well, finally, Paul says, we can demonstrate compassion we would demonstrate compassion, and I put all these together, bitterness, you know, put, put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, along with all malice. Rather, be kind to one another, tender-hearted with one another, forgive one another. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. God in Christ has forgiven me. And I don't want to downplay this in any way at all, but, but really, in a sense, when we read that, I, I believe it's self-explanatory. Really. It, the idea of Paul saying, take your eyes off yourselves, put your eyes on Christ, and look through that lens at each other. Look at each other through Christ. Because it was Christ who gave Himself for us even when we were enemies of His. He took on our punishment that we deserved, that we might be saved and, and let's be completely and totally honest here. You and I have not been offended by anyone to the extent that we have offended a holy God. I want to say that again. We have not, you and I have not been offended to the extent that we have offended a holy God. And we who have been forgiven much are in no place to withhold that compassion. We're in no place to do that. We are no, in no place to withhold the compassion or the forgiveness, particularly within our family. 
And I know I rushed through those last two, but I want to close again with these words that I quoted earlier. Let us fall down before the majesty of our good God with acknowledgement of our sins, praying Him to make us perceive them more and more. But may He enlighten us with the doctrine of the gospel that we may also behold the righteousness which has been shown to us in our Lord Jesus Christ and lean upon it with endeavor to be fashioned thereafter so that we may daily come near and near to it until we cleave thoroughly to it. Christ, who was the truth, loved the truth, and always spoke the truth. Always. He always exercised emotional self-control. He always expressed the right amount of anger and always did it in the right, in the right amount of time. He was benevolent and diligent and never sought to take advantage of anyone or anything, but always and rather expended every ounce of energy and everything that he was for the sake of others. It was the Lord Jesus whose words were like honey and they encouraged and edified the lowliest of the low. And he was compassionate and he forgave even when we were sinners, even while we were his enemies. And I would pray that in the days and weeks ahead, we would look to him and that we would rest in him and his work on our behalf. And may we, by his grace and in the power of his spirits, again, strive and rest as we walk by faith in a manner worthy of the call that he has given to us. For the sake of Christ for the sake of our church and each other, and for the sake of a watching world. Let's pray together.